You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Revelation chapter 2, let me read the last section of chapter 2, the letter to the church in Thyatira. And to the angel, verse 18, of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw her into, throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And I want to focus where Christ focuses in the against you that he has for Thyatira. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you that you are tolerant. Now that word tolerate or tolerant is a hot topic for us as a society, isn't it? And it has been for some time. Here's a definition from the Oxford American Dictionary. Tolerance is showing a willingness to allow the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. And I hope even in that definition, you can see there's the potential for a positive tolerance and there's the potential for a negative tolerance. In a positive light, we do need to be able to figure out a way to function in a world where people have belief systems or belief specifics different than ours, right? I mean, we can at least acknowledge that. In fact, the Bible would move us toward a positive tolerance toward image bearers in our society. And yet, there's also a need for intolerance, isn't there? And so what this passage provides for us is actually four steps that will educate us as followers of Christ to make sure that we are tolerating what the king tolerates and not tolerating tolerating what the king does not tolerate. That's the point. In fact, you can see the big idea in your notes. 
And that is that the king warns his church not to tolerate what he does not tolerate. And beloved, that will become the standard. That will become the plumb line. If you want to live as a patriotic American, as you want to live as we come into a very important election on Tuesday, in a way that honors Christ, being able to tolerate and then also being able to be intolerant, we need to follow the example and the standard of the king. So four steps. Number one, step one, start with the king. And I find that in verse 18. He says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Remember, we said that the angel is a divine being who is not limited by space and the physical universe like we are. And so angels have the opportunity to be present when we don't realize that they're present. And so they have the ability to see things and see us doing things that maybe others do not. And so the angels are able to report back to Jesus with great detail who we truly are. And so there's great accountability in that phrase to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Now what's interesting about Thyatira is this is the least known city of the seven. I've shared with you with the previous three that we know what the population was of the ancient cities. We know about temples and temple guardian status. We know a lot about their history. But when we get to Thyatira, we don't know a whole lot about that. But what we do know about them is actually found in the last phrase of verse 18. And there's a play on concepts here. In one sense, Jesus is drawing attention to burnished bronze to draw the readers back to chapter 1, verse 15. But in another sense, he's actually entering into the historical context. The word burnished bronze was unique for Thyatira. Thyatira was known in the ancient world for their unions or their trade guilds. They were known as a city for the products that they produced. In fact, you can write down Acts chapter 16. You can look at this later, but Acts chapter 16, verse 14, when Paul was visiting Philippi, he came across a woman named Lydia. And do you remember how she was known? She was a seller of purple from Thyatira. And so Thyatira was known for their purple dye. They were known throughout the ancient world for that. But they were also known for their bronze recipe. They were also known because they had a secret way of refining bronze that was unique for Thyatira that they did not share with anyone else. So if you wanted this particular finishing of bronze, you would go to Thyatira. And so when Jesus mentioned that his feet are like burnished bronze, immediately the Thyatirans would have said, bronze, we know bronze, we are about bronze, we have a secret recipe for bronze. Ah, Jesus has furnished bronze. So it tied Thyatira into a historical context that was contemporary for them. But I want you to see, he's actually drawing from the Old Testament. And this is where I see the king concept. Look at how we process that. Feet like burnished bronze and eyes like flames of fire actually draw the reader's attention back to Daniel 10.6. You can write that down. 
In Daniel 10.6, Daniel sees a man standing by the river, and he begins to describe him. And what's fascinating about Daniel's description is it's actually very similar to John's description of Jesus. And what we see in Daniel chapter 10 is a man who was standing there with eyes of flaming fire, with feet of burnished bronze. And so now the reader in Thyatira would have been drawn back to the Old Testament, specifically the book of Daniel, and now we start to see other parallels, don't we? What was an experience in Daniel where there was a furnace of fire? Do you remember? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what's interesting about that story in Daniel chapter 3 is that when Nebuchadnezzar looked in the furnace, he saw a fourth individual, and how did he describe that individual? One like a son of God. And then when we begin to understand how the Jews understood Daniel, they understood that the son of man of Daniel 7 was actually the son of God. And so now what we're being able to realize is, ah, the Old Testament context actually draws the reader in Thyatira to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And as Son of God, one of the most important psalms in all of the psalm book is Psalm 2, and now we bring this all together. Because in Psalm 2, it says that the nations gather against the Lord's anointed, And the father says, this is my son. This is the son of God. And to the son of God, I will give the nations as his inheritance. And now we begin to see that John's specific use of Jesus' words in this order would have drawn the Thyatirans back to the fact that Jesus is son of God and he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. That is interesting, and it also reminds us how important it is for us to have a knowledge of the Old Testament. Amen? Now, one other phrase that I would like to draw your attention to, verse 18. He says, he has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, and he is the Son of God. That draws us back to Daniel, and it also draws us to Psalm 2. And listen to this. In Psalm 2, it says that he will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Look down at verse 27 of Revelation 2. It says he will rule them with a rod of iron and when earthen pots are broken in pieces. There is intentionality with these letters. There is intentionality with connecting the New Testament with the Old Testament. There is intentionality that God has for us to be students of God's Word. So we're going to get to a place where I'm going to unpack how we abide in Christ. But I want you to understand that when we say study God's word on a daily basis, it's because there are treasures to be found in God's word. And those treasures are not having as their end game knowledge. Those treasures are having as their end game an understanding of the character of God and awe of Jesus Christ and a worship of him. And so beloved, if you didn't study God's word this morning, you still have a few hours left. If you didn't study God's word yesterday, that doesn't mean you're not necessarily a Christian. What it means is you just missed an opportunity to feast. And so now when we begin to be whetted in our appetite with how these things all connect, it takes time, it takes patterns. So friends, let's be students of God's word. It's interesting to see how things change the farther you get from the source, isn't it? Let me give you an example. 
I went to the Master's Seminary. The president of the Master's Seminary is John MacArthur. Some of you might have heard of him. John MacArthur is a, a rather polarizing pastor and author from the 20th century and now in the 21st century. People either love John MacArthur or they despise John MacArthur. John MacArthur is not afraid to speak the truth, right? Those of you who know him. But do we really know him? Here's what I mean. There are a lot of people that when they say that I graduated from the master's seminary, they will immediately say, did you know John MacArthur believes this? What's fascinating is that I will ask them, yeah, but have you actually read John MacArthur? Have you actually talked to John MacArthur? Do you actually know John MacArthur? And the further you get from the source of John MacArthur's teaching, it can get a little mysterious and foggy, can it? It can get a little bent to people's personalities and hobbies. The same thing has happened throughout church history. If you look at John Calvin, and you look at what John Calvin actually taught, and then begin to look at people who call themselves Calvinists, you realize a lot of the teaching of the modern Calvinists is a lot different than John Calvin himself. Let me give you another example. My dad grew up in a small town in Minnesota and attended a Lutheran church. He attended that Lutheran church throughout his entire childhood, but it wasn't until his adulthood that he actually heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what Martin Luther himself would say if he heard that a Lutheran church spent years opening the Bible or not opening the Bible and someone never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. My point is, is that the further we get away from the source, the more potential there is to disrupt and make an error what the source actually says. And so we need to remember that when it comes to tolerating, we need to recognize that step number one is we must get back to the king. What we tolerate and what we do not tolerate is not a matter of denomination. What we tolerate and do not tolerate is not primarily a matter of a church or a group or a political affiliation. What matters first and foremost and what is primary when it comes to the topic of tolerating is to get back to the king. What does the king tolerate? What does he not tolerate? It's interesting, I've been watching the World Series. I'm so sad that it didn't go to seven games. But what an amazing series that was. But as I've been watching, there is the commercials that you continually see about Jesus. And they say there was a man who, you know, taught. And there was a man who had uh, a mission and he was oppressed. He was persecuted, but he gets us. And he did not respond with violence, which is somewhat true. He never raised his voice, which is not true. And in their effort to show how Jesus is like us, there's the potential of actually not showing Jesus as he actually was and is. There are some things, beloved, that Jesus does not tolerate. And he has some pretty salty language to show his intolerance. So we begin, when it comes to the topic of tolerating, with where this letter begins, and that is the king himself. Step number two, anchor in gospel patterns. 
anchor, anchor in gospel patterns. The letters then, as we found in the first three, tend to move to commendation, don't they? Something that the church is doing well. And so look at the commendation, verse 19. I know or have known your works. You can write down Ephesians 2.10. We are saved for good works. Works are the evidence that we have been saved. God expects that if you've been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you can say your sins have been forgiven, he expects that to produce works. And so, God is constantly evaluating our works. And so look at the works of Thyatira. Love, agape love. Faith, faithfulness. Service, sacrifice toward one another in the work of ministry. And patient endurance. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 9, patient endurance is something that John says is a hallmark of believers. That doesn't mean that we don't have difficult times. That doesn't mean that if you were to take a snapshot of our life, that it might look like we're not a believer in that moment. But what it does mean is that no matter how hard life gets, no matter how much persecution we experience, that we will, as a pattern of our lives, patiently endure. And this church was doing that. But also, too, look at this. It wasn't just a season that they were doing it. He says in verse 19, your latter works exceed the first. He's showing there are patterns here. Patterns that evidence the gospel is actually taken root. Friends, this is so important. And it reminds me of plants. I'm not a plant guy. My wife and my middle daughter Mallory are. They have a fiddle fig. For those of you who don't know that, it's big leaves that kind of look like the wooden part of a fiddle. And they put this in the right place. It had plenty of sun. They watered it the way that they were supposed to, and yet the thing was unhealthy. And so my thought is, well, you just throw it away. I think you're you're getting an idea. That's kind of what I do. But they talked to another plant lady and they found out that what you need to do is you actually need to poke holes in the soil because the soil is not breathing. If the soil is not healthy, then the plant will not be healthy. And what I want you to see is that in this list in verse 19, this is the soil. This is healthy soil. If you want to be able to be a person who tolerates what the king tolerates, if you want to be a person who does not tolerate what the king does not tolerate, you need to have healthy soil, healthy gospel soil. So how do we do that? This is where abiding in Christ comes in. In fact, you can write down John 15, 1 through 17. If you want to make sure that the soil of your life is healthy, then we must abide in Christ. That's the secret. That's the miracle grow. If you want to be able to live in this volatile culture, if you want to be able to respond appropriately at the end of Tuesday... If you want to be able to function in a way where you will hear God say that you are a good and faithful servant, you need to have healthy soil. And the secret to that is abiding in Christ. Here are six ways you can abide in Christ. I believe there's a slide for you to write these down. Number one, daily feast on God's word. 
And that, that wording is important. We, we feast on God's word. We, we read God's word with an expectation. This morning I was reading from the Gospel of John. I was reading chapters 8 through 11. And what I noticed in that is how many times Jesus referred to himself as son and the father. And actually that upset the Jews. Because they understood that Jesus making God his father and declaring himself officially the title of son of God. That he was declaring himself God. Which by the way, this is, this is for free and this isn't in my notes. Whenever you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they will pull out John 1.1, won't they? And they will say, literally in the Greek, there's no article. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. And they will say, well, there you go. Jesus was not at the same level as the Father. But the fact is, is that if you study the rest of the Gospel of John, you see very clearly Jesus claimed to be God. And this is an example, and I found that in chapters 8 through 11, that Jesus declaring himself son of God. In fact, the people actually responded, we want to kill him because he declared himself equal with God. By that phrase, son of God. Now, for me, that was exciting. But, but I read my devotions this morning with expectation to feast. And so that's what I'm saying, is that we don't just read the Bible to check a box, And you may say, well, I I would never be able to read chapters 8 through 11 and find that. Listen, friend, I may be your pastor, but the only reason I get to stand up here and preach is because a calling God's placed on my life, a gifting, and a lot of education and study, and a lot of time. And so, friends, you can do the same thing. It just takes time. And so if you're not used to reading chapters 8 through 11 in John and being able to discover those nuggets, you just need to start somewhere. And the more you do that, the more you discover, the more that you're taught, the more that you apply what you're being taught, the more you're going to get to a place where you can do that yourself too. And so we come to God's word on a daily basis looking to feast. And some days it'll be macaroni and cheese, mostly because it's us. But we come to God's word, daily feast, and I won't spend as much time on the other five. Number two, we confess our sins. And this can get, especially people who have been saved for a long time. Can we get settled in an apathy toward our sin? Well, God's already forgiven that. I don't see a whole lot of major sins in my life. No, no, no. 1 John 1, 9 says we are to confess in a present tense, ongoing. We are constantly to be evaluating ourselves. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we are to be regularly, that one's a present tense as well, regularly examining ourselves to see are we truly saved. That means it should expose sin in our lives. So you want to abide in Christ, you daily feast on his word. You confess sins. Number three, you align your will with his. And how do you do that? Through prayer. Do you know that's one of the primary blessings and benefits of prayer? Is that I'm praying thinking of my father and his character. That's where prayer starts. That's why Jesus' disciple prayer in Matthew 7 begins with the father. That's where prayer begins. It doesn't rush to our requests. It doesn't move quickly to us. It starts with God. And when we have that mindset and we realize his name is to be hallowed, When we remember that he is in the heavens and we want how that will is being carried out in the heavens to take place here, which by the way, again, this is in my notes, man. 
But Tuesday has already been predestined. What does Daniel 2.21 say? It is God who raises kings and he tears them down. Every result of the election on Tuesday has been preordained by God. Let us rest in that and let us partner with him by voting for people as best as we can tell that will uphold his righteousness. But friends, let's not worry about it. Let's not be angry about it in a sinful sense. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And when you begin to think about God that way in your prayers, do you realize when you make your request, you're going to be saying, listen, I think this is what's best, but I want my will to align with yours. So do what your will is. Man, all three of these will help the soil be healthy, but there's more. Number four, iron sharpening iron. And I'll tell you what, the conversations that we had in Linden, Kansas, were stretching for me. There were some convictions that other guys had that I didn't have at the beginning of that conversation. In fact, I had opposite convictions. And there was a wrestling, and let me tell you, there were some sparks that were flying. But man, I got sharpened through that. Is that what you're doing in the local church? The place for iron to sharpen iron is here with this group. And it takes place not just right now, not just out there in the lobby, not just in the kids' classrooms, not just in the baptism class, not just in foundations. It takes place in small group. It takes place in coffees. But this is your people. This is your iron. And this is abiding in Christ. Number five, building up the body of Christ with your talents and gifts. The body needs your talents and gifts. In fact, Ephesians 4 says, when you were saved, you were given gifts by Jesus Christ himself with the purpose of building up this group. How are you doing that? Number six, sharing the light of Christ in this dark world. We live in a dark world, don't we? And I hope what you'll see through our study of Revelation is we don't live in a uniquely dark time. It has been dark since the beginning of Genesis 3. But the visibility of the darkness seems to be a lot more in 2022 than it was in 1977, probably the first year that I could remember anything, plus the first year Star Wars came out. (laughs) It is a dark world. And friends, we need to share the light of Christ. If you're getting excited about this stuff, share it with people. I mean, we are happy to share what teams we support. We are happy to share an incredible find that we had when we were shopping. We're, we're, We're happy to share about some amazing vacation that we had. But how much more to share in this dark world what they need. So that's abiding in Christ as best as I could come up with. What's interesting about John 15, 17 is that verse 17 talks about agape love that is in the list that we see in verse 19 for Thyatira. Step two is to be anchored in gospel patterns. This is the soil, the healthy soil. If we want to have healthy soil and be tolerant of what the king is tolerating, And intolerant of what the king does not tolerate, we need to have healthy soil anchored in gospel patterns. Step three, recognize the danger of error. And as we've been studying this, we expect what we find in verse 20, but. Remember, this is the strong contrast in the Greek. 
But even though things are going so well, even though you are even better in this sense than Ephesus that you haven't forsaken your first love. However, in contrast, I have something against you. And the issue that they were tolerating is actually expressed by verse 20, that woman Jezebel, which, by the way, I don't think this was her name. In fact, I don't even personally think this was a woman. She might have been. But I think when you look at Second John 1, you see that sometimes the Bible writers refer to churches or groups as women, the lady, the elect lady, which I think was referring to a church. But listen, the point is not the identity of the woman. The point is the teaching. And what was the teaching? Well, Jesus actually uses this Old Testament reference of Jezebel. You can write down 1 Kings 16 to see how Jezebel, the literal historical person, turned Israel away from Yahweh worship and to fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what Jesus is trying to do is draw that analogy to Jezebel. And what her teaching was, or this group's teaching was, is seducing professing believers to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. What does this mean? Well, the historical context of Thyatira educates us. These trade guilds, these unions, would have patron deities, either Greek deities or Roman deities or both. And so what they would do is in order to appease their patron deity, they would come together on a regular basis for feasts. And these feasts would be lavish, and they would include alcohol. And you would come together, and you were celebrating your union's deity or your trade guild's deity. And you would come in, and you would probably have, you know, these handshakes that you would have. They would probably have logos and statues up there that we are part of this guild, this deity. And that was their identity. And these feasts would actually lead to drunkenness. And this drunkenness would usually dissolve into some religious sexual immorality. And that was just part of the culture. And what this group or this woman was doing is using God's word to somehow say that was appropriate. And in fact, look at what it says. She calls herself a prophetess. A prophet was not somebody who simply told the future. It was someone who spoke authoritatively for God. So that's how I can say that this teaching was actually saying authoritatively, God allows you as a Christian over here to also participate in the sexual immorality and the drunkenness and the eating food sacrificed to idols of the world. And Jesus says that's dangerous. We were talking on our elder retreat about how the God of the Old Testament seems a lot more, I don't know, powerful, kind of more intolerant. But I think when you have a foundation of the Old Testament, you see it actually in the New Testament. And when you see what you see in the New Testament, you can actually find that in the Old Testament. Here's what I want to show, is that in the New Testament, we seem to think God is so gracious and, and long-suffering. He was in the Old Testament too. I mean, for 400 years, there was the iniquity of the Amorites in Canaan, Right? 400 years. He let them exist for, we, we, we as a country haven't even existed for 400 years. 
400 years he gave to the Canaanites to do their immorality, to live out their rebellion, giving them time to repent. They refused. And that's why Joshua was told to go in and wipe everybody out. But, but now when we get to the New Testament, look at this. He gave her time to repent. Do you see it in the text? How gracious of our God that he gives any of us time to repent. But there is a point where it says, look what it says, she refused. Do you see it? The, the Greek word is desire. She weighed two desires in the balance. The desire to obey God, the desire to fulfill lust, desire, uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And she says, no, I desire myself. I desire me. And God says, no, you're done. He's going to throw her on a sickbed. Do you see it in the text? That's the same God of the Old Testament. There is a point, beloved, when the time to repent expires. And when that happens, judgment. And God's judgment is significant. Do you see it? He's going to throw her on a sickbed. He's going to give time for her followers to repent. But if they don't, they're going to experience, look at what the text says, great tribulation. Do you see it? I keep asking you to see it because this isn't my words. This is the text. What's interesting about great tribulation is that if we want to know what that looks like, stay tuned. The rest of Revelation will unpack what the tribulation of God's judgment actually looks like. So stay tuned. It's not going to be pretty. God takes very seriously error. Now, let's look at the word tolerate. It's a different word. We go back to Ephesians 2, I believe it was. It talked about tolerating. It's a different word, though. Maybe it was Pergamum. Yeah, it was Pergamum. It's a different word. This word tolerate is an interesting one. The word tolerate here means to leave it to someone to do something with the implication of distancing oneself from the event. Well done, team. You know, the great thing about the team back there is you really never know that they're back there. But they are amazing. They make what I do so much easier. Thank you. But this quote is important because, because look at a couple things. We leave it to someone else. We distance ourselves from something. And here's what was happening. The people of Thyatira and the leadership of the church knew this was going on. And there's some evidence as we look at the text that they leaned in at the beginning, but for whatever reason, they distanced themselves from someone, maybe thinking it was somebody else's responsibility. And God has some pretty powerful words against that. It's interesting, when you look at American history, there was a British major by the name of John Andre. Some of you have heard this story. John Andre was captured because he was found to be in league with the uh, Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold betrayed the United States, or at that point, the colonies, and so Major Andre was condemned to die. He was condemned to be hanged. And he was so respected by the colonial officers because of his impeccable character 
because of his adherence to the law of war, that the colonial officers begged Washington to spare his life. Washington refused. Major Andre then made a second request. Please honor me with the death of an officer through execution by a firing squad. The colonial officers agreed. They said, listen, let's just honor him for for his character. The next day, Major Andre was hanged. Washington explained why he was not tolerant. He said, if Major Andre was successful in his plan, all would have been lost. You see, friends, there are some of us who talk about how we aren't necessarily wired for conflict. Maybe some of you would say, yep, that's me. Some of us would say, I don't enjoy confrontation. And yes, God has wired us a certain way, but there is a time and a place where we all need to confront. Amen? Let me give you an example. Say you're a parent of a toddler who's just learned to walk. You're talking to your neighbor out in your driveway. You live on a busy road. You notice that there's a car coming and the person in the car that's driving is texting. You look over just a further distance away and your toddler has water waddled out into the street. Now, what would happen if you're like, well, I just don't confront. I'm not a confrontational kind of person. It's absurd. We all know what we would do as parents, right? No matter what our wiring is, the context demands confrontation because of the danger. Now, let me give you another illustration. And I wrote this down with nobody in mind. So please hear me. This is actually drawn from my experience in the corporate world because I saw this with professing Christians. What happens as you're talking in your small group to a fellow small group member who's a member of the corporate world and from time to time to impress clients they go out and they get drunk with them how do you respond to that maybe you say well i'm just don't confront I, i just don't like conflict maybe you argue well you know what that's their decision it's kind of a gray area well it's not ephesians 5 18 says do not be drunk with wine i don't know how it can be any more clear Beloved, these are the kinds of scenarios that I think become more mysterious and and gray for us that Jesus is reminding us through the letter to Thyatira, confront. There's danger. Don't distance yourself. Don't leave it to somebody else. We must not tolerate what the king does not tolerate. You say, well, maybe Jesus would tolerate The scenario that you just gave about the small group. Look at how he responds to the teaching of Jezebel. He says, I'm going to put her on her sickbed. I'm going to put great tribulation in the path of her followers. And in fact, I'm actually going to kill her children, which by the way, is a great word study there. The word children means followers. And you can write down 1 John 2. 12 to see how he uses that in the epistle to talk about the people who are following his teaching. But what he's saying is those who have put their hat in the ring for Jezebel, those who have said, no, we are her followers, we will not repent, he says, I will kill you. That's pretty serious. 
And you say, well, where does the alcohol scenario come into play? Well, here's a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. This is what the teaching of Jezebel was. Any thoughts, speech, behavior that feeds and does not put to death the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we've got to be educated on this, and so we abide in Christ, and we continue those patterns, and we make sure that the soil is healthy, absolutely. And sometimes we might confront something that maybe we'll learn later, ah, maybe I shouldn't have confronted that. That's part of the Christian life. But the bottom line is, what Jesus is saying is that the teaching is summed up by this. Any thoughts, speech, and behavior that feeds, instead of putting to death, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is contained in the description of the teaching of Jezebel. And it's dangerous. So step one is, it starts with the king. Step two is, it's anchored to gospel patterns. Step three is, recognize the danger of error. Step four is to authenticate by faithful patterns. Look at verse 23. This is the only time that Jesus references all seven of the churches. And I think by a ripple effect through the number seven, all churches of all generations. Verse 23, all the churches will know. Why is this important for Thyatira? It's because of this. False teaching is deceptive. False teaching is not easily identifiable. That's why John and Jesus use the phrase, the deep things of Satan. Do you see it in verse 24? I doubt very highly the people teaching Jezebel said, we want you to know the deep things of Satan. Most likely, they were saying, we want you to know the deep things of who? God. And so people who are not discerning, people who are not starting with the king, people who want to have the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life fed, are going to say, ooh, the deep things of God. And they're not going to study it out for themselves. But John and Jesus say, no, 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 you need to understand, these are the deep things of Satan. And it's so deceiving. I need all the churches to know, this is how you handle it. You lean into it. You confront it faithfully with patterns. Verse 25, hold fast until he comes. Verse 25, conquer and keep the works until the end. It's interesting that Jesus says that I'm giving the people who are following after these teaching time to repent, and they're actually going to be rewarded or judged according to their works. But then he actually says in verse 24, to the rest of you, those who are faithful, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden except this, verse 25, patterns. Beloved, all believers are called to patterns, faithful patterns. I'll I'll try to illustrate it this way, and by your reaction, I'll see whether or not I'll use this in second service. So like a show of hands. So Meg is a senior, our oldest daughter. Wow. So there's all of these like milestones that we're starting to experience and like I'm not an emotional guy by nature, but I am experiencing emotions. I'm like, what? Are my eyes leaking? We had this last milestone last week where, well, not last, but the most recent one, 
was we were supposed to give two pictures for a senior tribute for the yearbook. One of this year and then one from her childhood. And so we delivered a picture for the yearbook of, you know, a photo shoot that a couple in the family did that was amazing. And she looks amazing. And she's smiling and she's happy and her hair looks amazing. She clearly did not get that from her dad. And then we chose one from her childhood. Oh, she just has this wedding dress on. She's smiling and everything looks amazing. But in the process of finding that picture, we saw some other pictures. They weren't always smiling. They weren't always with the background of a clean house. They weren't always with the hair in the right spot. But what we learned in that process through looking at all of those together is we saw patterns. And you know what? The beautiful young lady that you see in that senior picture is who she truly is. Because it's not about skin. It's not about hair. It's about character. And we saw that through the years. We saw that in remembering those moments when she was crying or when her sister was crying because of her. And the parenting that we had to do. And the gospel-centered instruction. And to see that gospel bearing fruit in her life. It's about patterns, not snapshots. And that's what Jesus is saying. Is he's saying, look, there is a snapshot that I see here where you're tolerating the teachings of Jezebel. But I'm interested in patterns until I return. Conquering, keeping my works. And, and if you do that, the things that he promises he'll give them are not additional rewards. It's confirmation that they're citizens of the king. That's what these mean. Because all these descriptions are actually descriptions of Jesus Christ himself. And so it's not saying we're Jesus. It's not saying we're gods like he is. What it's saying is we give affirmation that we are his people. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm sensing that in, this was inadequate, but I hope that the Holy Spirit will use it. The, the, the topic is tolerating. There is a time to tolerate. There's a time to be intolerant. The point is, is that Thyatira was not following the example of Christ. They had a lot of things going well. And so, so here's my question. As, as I look around this room, I'm seeing a whole lot of faithful people. I'm seeing that list that Thyatira demonstrated is present in you. It's present in this church. Praise God for that. But I want to ask you individually and us as a church, is there toleration going on that the king would not tolerate? The first thing you have to do is look at that in your own life. And the most important question to ask is, are you tolerating yourself on the throne? Are you the one calling the shots? Is it your definitions to morality? Or have you surrendered to King Jesus? If you haven't, friend, today is your day. Lay down the throne. Vacate it. Because of the work of Christ, you can be saved. Your sins can be forgiven, but you must respond. You must ask him to forgive you. You must surrender your life. You must put your faith in him if you haven't done that right now, friend. 
But if you have, maybe there's some sin in your life that you're tolerating. Maybe there's some foolishness in your life that you're tolerating. Maybe there's one of the six or more that you're not living out as a pattern of your life with abiding in Christ. Friend, whatever it is, take the learning that we have just had by looking at this fourth letter to the church of Thyatira. The Holy Spirit has something for you that he wants you to learn that will then transition into living.